It's time for Security Now, a great big landmark episode. I'll let Steve share that news with you. He'll talk about the 1.2 billion password exploit, bad USB, and we'll answer your questions, too. It's all coming up next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C A C H E F L Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 468, recorded August 12th, 2014. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 194. Security Now is brought to you by Harry's. For guys who want a great shave experience for a fraction of what you're paying now, go to harrys.com. Get five bucks off your first purchase by entering the code SECURITYNOW when you check out. And by ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter makes hiring faster, easier, and cheaper. Post your job to 50-plus job boards with one click. Try ZipRecruiter with a free four-day trial right now at ZipRecruiter.com. Slash security now. ZipRecruiter.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show that protects you, your loved ones, your privacy online with the man in charge, the explainer in chief, the head honcho at the Gibson Research Corporation, Mr. Steve Gibson. Hi, Steve. Hey, Leo. It's great to be with you again for the final episode of year nine. Holy cow. You mean we're completing our ninth year? This today, if by some strange coincidence, it was actually Elaine who, who, in in our weekly conversation where we're exchanging test um, the the transcripts, she mentioned a few weeks ago that because of the fact that we had shifted to Tuesday, yeah. and you know the 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 phase of the moon and leap years and all that all coming together, yeah, our first our very first podcast we ever recorded was august 19th of 2005 wow so august 19th of 2014 is next tuesday so there you go there you have it so that so next tuesday starts year 10 that's kind Um, of amazing that we have been doing this that long i just does not feel that long it, what, it really is. What do you give and somebody for the ninth anniversary? Is that Bakelite? I think so. Resuscitation. Res- I think. <laughs> Nine years. Well, congratulations and uh, thank you. Fibrillation. Absolutely. Thank hey, you. thank you. It's been the yeah. best thing I've ever done. Yeah. It's been oh, no, it absolute. hasn't. That, don't say that. But it, it's best one thing. Of, one of, it's one of the absolute best things I've ever done. Well, I said to, I, I tweeted to Jen. Jen's up uh, at a yoga retreat at the moment. Uh, she does that every summer, uh, and yoga is like you know oxygen for her. Uh, and I and I told her that today was the end of the ninth year, and I said nine years. I said that that that's something. So <laughs> that's it. Huh? The whole story went to that's, that. Huh? That's, something. <laughs> <laughs> that's something. Yeah, it is. That's it a, is something, all right. As they say these days, that's a thing. I didn't know that was a thing. Oh, yeah, that's a it's thing. It's a thing. Yeah. That's a thing. I think Tom yeah. Tom Merritt and uh, Molly Wood had a podcast briefly called It's a Thing that they talked about uh, uh, it's, it's a thing. <laughs> things those, that were those, things. Those things that become things. It doesn't. Yeah. It sounds like a tautology, but it is not. 
I think I might have first heard it used on the West Wing. I, it was the kind of smart yeah, yeah. language that they Sorkin used type. there. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, and Josh said, that's a thing? And it's like, oh, yeah. Oh, that's yeah. a thing. You know, You're you, right. Yeah, you could... You can do that. You 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 can buy one of those. So whatever it was, yeah. So, so uh, we've got a great podcast. It's a Q and A, our hundred and ninety fourth Q and A. Holy uh, moly! We've had a Patch Tuesday, a little bad USB follow up. Uh, we got to talk about the the discovery of the Crypto Locker private key repository, which has allowed the creation of of an unlocking capability. Uh, then, of course, the news of the Russians uh, that uh, a, a Russian group of, of 20 something hackers who have 1.2 billion passwords and yeah. usernames. I wanted to know their... a little bit about that. That's, I, yeah. It seemed odd to me. And I... I have some backstory on that. Yeah, okay. And then I wanted to talk to you about uh, Google's security biasing their website ranking, which I think is interesting. Ah, uh, yes. And, and LastPass had a problem this morning that they seem to have recovered from, but it upset people. And then the question of whether your potato chips might be spying on you. So lots to talk about. And, of course, then Q&A. My potato chips? Yes. Not computer turns chips? Out, turns out that a bag of potato chips might be oh, leaking crap. critical information. <laughs> I can't believe it. Oh, yes. oh Lord. Hey, before we go on, I know there's something you like an awful lot uh, in this world. Coffee? And coffee? Besides coffee. Oh. Well, maybe you, you know, it might be one of those things where you didn't used to like it very much, but now you do. Oh, my God. They're I'm, sponsoring. I'm talking. Yeah, he's excited. <laughs> he's giving them so many free ads. Uh, he's, he's, he can't believe they're actually buying one. <laughs> and I was going to I was gonna say Harry's, except that last time I did, it's like, oh, well, no, I didn't say that. <laughs> no, uh, you so won't get in trouble. We, you now, love oh Harry's. God, Leo, I was fuzzy. Like uh, 20 minutes ago when you guys started yeah. doing your picks of the week, I thought, oh, I got I to gotta go. And I just ran my favorite orange handle over my face. Isn't it awesome? Was, and now I... Look, I can't stop touching myself now. I'm I, just so I uh, did something yesterday ah. that was I had never done before, which is actually uh, dry face, no water, put some Harry's <gasps> this shave cream on no. and shaved. And, I, you know, it was great. No. I know you usually want hot water. You soften the... But that's what's great about this Harry's shave cream. It really... I mean, I wouldn't recommend it, but uh, <laughs> it was yeah. fine. Wait, I shaved. And well, how what? How do you get it off of you? I mean, that stuff really is tenacious. Well, it is, is but you know, you shave, and, it, and that's one of the things I like about it is you can really yeah. see where you've shaved. And then and uh, if you cut yourself on camera, we're going to have a problem. Well, so. and that was the one thing that I, I've mentioned before, but I really this is true. Of course, with cheap blades, you cut yourself all the time, and you know I can never understand why people buy those disposable, you know, the little blue disposable razors, which are guaranteed to yeah. cut you, guaranteed the bix. The and then, uh, and then I see people spending like four dollars for a fusion, and I understand why because it's so expensive to buy the drugstore razor that they're they're trying to save money. But look at this is your this is your one and only put them. You don't want to cut your put them. This is your face here, and uh, I have been using Harry's now. I can't. I don't know for how long, but well, a few months. Not one cut ever. Not yeah. one it cut. In fact, if people saw the speed with which I moved the blade over my oh, I face, believe it. You go, they would become they would be uh, they would be concerned for the future of the podcast. <laughs> well, you know, I same I, thing. I, I mean, look at this. I mean, yeah. I just, it's, it's just fabulous, and I just like go zoom 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 zoom. I zoom, found zoom, out zoom, what zoom, the secret is. The 
They, there are, it turns out, two factories in Germany that can make a blade that won't cut you. Two. Only two. There, there's my handle. That's the one I recommend. You like the Truman. Like yeah. Yeah. Because I like a little more, a little more traction with the handle than the, than the fancy silver yeah. one gives. I use the Winston because I like a little more weight. It's, you know, it's personal choice. That's why they have both. And I got my Winston engraved with my initials, LDO. <laughs> of course you did. Of course I did. But I was saying there are only two factories in Germany that can make blades that don't cut you. Harry's bought one of them. Uh, they actually, they were, it was really interesting. Harry's was, one of the guys who started Harry's, Jeff, uh, also started Warby Parker. And he really has a commitment. Uh, he really wanted, I mean, it almost was a quest to create the best shape possible. And and he realized in order to do this, he had to buy, this is it, Fine Technic, the factory where they make the blades. So they own the blade factory. 400 Germaneers, German engineers, designers, and craftsmen and production workers build, they make millions of blades a year, and this is, Harry's offers them to you. And here's the beauty part, about half what that drugstore blade costs you. For a better yeah. blade and better shave cream, get the Harry's kit, the Winston kit. It'll save $5 on your first order. Just use Steve's offer code, security now. Harry's, H-A-R-R-Y-S. Somebody said you shouldn't say Harry like somebody's got a hairy face or should Harry's. Harry's. <laughs> so you know the difference. Harry's.com slash and I, I guess there's no slash. Just uh, use the, just when just buy what you want. I get the blades every other month and the and the shave. I get four tubes of shave cream and eight blades every other month. You'll save five dollars in your first order with the code security now. Harry's. And if and if you're shaving when you're harried. Then you can still survive. You can still survive the process. I, I I should knock on wood when I say that, but I just, I literally now I change my blade every week. You probably do the same, but you don't shave yeah, every day. No, I don't. I go like as long as I possibly. Right. Normally, I, I I'm I'm an event shaver. I will shave for the podcast. <laughs> I've shaved for Jenny. An and that's pretty shaver. much. That's pretty much it. <laughs> Well, I shave every morning, and uh, and I sometimes shave every night as well. Uh, I, uh, you know, I have a kind of scratchy beard, so I like to keep it clean. And Harry's really is awesome. So, well, I'm I'm getting for what it's worth a more or less constant background Twitter of people who have listened to me raving about my experience and had one finally, and they say, "Wow, you're right." And there was I got a tweet yesterday that I remember, and it's like, "Yep, there's somebody else." So, yeah, it's Harry's the real deal. It's the real it's deal. The real so, uh, not a big newsy patch Tuesday. Um, there were nine bulletins in all. Um, seven of them were sort of important but not critical. The most severe infected affected all versions of Internet Explorer. And uh, the second most, uh, and that was a remote code uh, execution vulnerability. Now, what I saw said that it it was IE on Windows 8 but I but I, but when I looked at the Microsoft background it looked like it was just across the board everything so uh and then the second most um important one was also remote execution and that one was interesting that was Windows 8 and 8.1 and Media Center TV pack for Vista of all things and apparently there's some sort of a graphics processing pipeline vulnerability um that can allow code to get executed in your machine on those platforms. So, you know, there's, uh, and I updated my my 
um, Win 7 box that it had 10 things that it needed to fix. So it was probably um, these things from this morning. So, uh, you know, just update Windows as always. Um, we didn't learn a lot more detail from the actual presentation of our two German security guys uh, at uh, Black Hat uh, last Thursday when they gave their bad USB presentation. Um, so, and I don't know that there is a lot more to learn. I've been listening to you talking about it. I, I, I watched, uh, I, I wasn't home, unfortunately, for Twit, but I was able to watch it a little bit on Sunday. So I'm sorry that I missed the opportunity to, to, to be there, Leo. Yeah, but. that's okay. But, you know, Father Robert Ballister interviewed the guys at, because he was at Black Hat. And so okay. if you haven't watched this week at Enterprise Tech, his interview with the guys is there. Oh, good. And it is very, to me, it's scary. They answered a number of the, you know, the questions we've been asking, like, why don't they just make it with, you know, unburnable ROM? And uh, uh, it's really it's scary. It turns out uh, in their Black Hat presentation, they demonstrated the exploit. And uh, they, you can do it from software on a computer. You don't need any special yes. hardware. And that's yes. really, that means if a computer is infected with malware, that malware can write to the USB drive or the USB device, I should say, because it could be a phone, keyboard, you know, mass storage device of some kind, uh, modify the firmware. And unperceptibly, you take it out uh, and give it to somebody. No antivirus can detect it. I mean, I guess you could write one that would maybe detect it, but nothing right now. And well, uh, there's no way to fix it. Yes. The, um, I've done a little more research since. And there actually is in the USB specification, the formal USB spec has something called DFU, which is device firmware upgrade. So that is an in-band sanctioned formal technology for allowing a USB connected device to have its firmware upgraded. So some devices may support that or they may just use, you know, like their own their own non-spec style which you could determine from reverse engineering. Um and then the other thing that we talked about was like, you know, and this has been something that you and I discussed, why is the firmware writable? Well, I, in thinking about it a little bit further, and I again, I did some more research, imagine that you're a thumb drive and you've got this huge, like 16 gigabytes, 16 billion bytes of read-write, non-volatile grazing land. You know, of course, you're going to take a little corner of it and put your firmware there. You know, why, you know, why have a whole separate region of memory if because it's going to be more expensive and these things are you know certainly cost cost sensitive so nothing is more natural than just taking a you know a little tiny edge of the memory map of 16 plus gigs and just saying oh you know we'll load ourselves from there when we start up so i mean you you can see why the firmware would be writable that's what they so, they also said nobody wants to manufacture something they can't fix if they find a bug right you have to throw right. them all out. Right. And, you know, and then there, there was some conversation about why not use a security certificate? Well, first of all, the way you would apply that would only be useful for the device protecting itself from abuse. That is, and, and it would have to have, 
a non-writable portion in addition to a writable portion so that the non-writable portion couldn't obviously get overwritten. And it would have to check the, 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 the signature of the writable portion. You know, this is what Apple has gone through with, with the iPhone. We, and we've talked about this, this kind of approach. So that's, that's where the device is protecting itself against malicious firmware. It makes total sense for an iPhone to do that because Apple wants to protect themselves from that. But, I mean, we're talking about thumb drives that virtually have no profit margin yeah. in them, yeah. you know, being made in in vast quantities in China, and they don't care. They just want to, you know, sell them. So it just it, it ends up not happening. And and as you said, Leo, this and as they said, it really is something to concern ourselves about. It's, uh, you know, they said it's undetectable. Um, it's easy to do. It turns out you don't need, I thought you might need some special hardware. You could do it from any PC. Uh, and uh, they said, though, don't panic. There's no examples of this in the wild. I had to add a yet. Uh-huh, yeah. Because uh, I think that, you know, it's, we're not far from that happening. Uh, and I imagine that this will create a business for some USB uh, device manufacturers to, you know, make uh, safe USB devices. Yes, if they're able to start claiming that their firmware is not rewritable, yeah. then that's a buying point you for bet. security conscious people. Oh, and by the way, Stina shot me a note immediately after this news happened. I think it was hours after the podcast saying just just so that I knew and actually um uh one of the uh Ubico guys um d- blogged immediately about it that the YubiKey is absolutely safe. Their firm, though, though parameters can be rewritten, the firmware cannot be. There's so they do very not have storage on those things. But that's just one of. There's several different kinds of YubiKeys, and some can be modified, right? Uh, Stina said I, no. None of them. Um, again, parameters, yes. Configuration, yes. But not the underlying firmware. I got what w- what she said was that was in ROM. That was you know the the, the firmware itself. Is protected. Good. That's great. So, um, uh, two companies, FireEye and Fox IT, teamed up. They were both doing research in the whole crypto locker virus deal, and they were involved in that much publicized infrastructure takedown of crypto locker, which we heard about. Well, it turns out that they were able to track down the servers where the private keys were being stored. Now, to remind our listeners, if when someone gets infected by CryptoLocker, their instance of CryptoLocker per machine, that is per instance of infection, contacts the server at a a quacky made-up DNS name, which is algorithmically derived. So every day there are new DNS servers which which the virus is able to calculate. And so the bad guys are putting them online sort of in, in a moving forward fashion. The They, they look up the, that DNS address in order to get the IP of a control server. When they establish that connection, they, they ask it, for a public key for this for this instance of infection so the server 
remotely generates a public and private key pair, keeps the private key, sends the the requesting malware the public key. It then, as it's encrypting each file, it generates a random number, a 256-bit encryption key, which it encrypts with the public key that it's, it's received from the foreign server. And then it appends that or prepends that key in a special header to the encrypted file. So what, you end, what, 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 what the victim ends up with is all of these different types of files encrypted with a special header containing an encrypted symmetric key which can which was encrypted with the public key but can only be as we know from the way public key crypto works can only be decrypted with the matching private key which has never left the master evil control server so at that point the victims sole recourse i mean and this is industry grade crypto i mean this is the this is the the good crypto that's giving us TNO security for cloud file protection and, you know, all the kinds of the beneficial crypto that we talk about turned to a bad purpose. But it doesn't make it any less effective. It's, it's, it's you know, it can't be cracked. So, so the only recourse is for the victim to then pay X number of Bitcoin uh, or, you know, money packs while that was initially being supported. And we're coming up now on a year. This was a year ago next month, a year ago September, this the crypto locker, you know, hit the news and we started covering it on the podcast. So it's been quite an experience. So only by paying the bad guys is the private key then sent to the victim, allowing them to run the decryption process, decrypt the headers to get the key that was used to to individually encrypt each of the files. So these guys found the repository of private keys. I mean, that's that's what you need. They, they're not generated algorithmically. There's no way to compute them. You had to actually find them, and they did. And so decryptolocker.com is now online and it is a UI, a user interface to the database of the master database of individual private keys for every victim that CryptoLocker has attacked. And anybody who has been a victim can can you, you you go to decryptolocker.com, give them your email address so that they can email you the private key and a sample encrypted file. And uh, and I'm not exactly sure of, of the process they go through. I mean, they could run the, the sample file against their key database, or maybe there is a you know some some identifier in the header that that identifies through a serial number, for example, which private key is the correct one. Um, in any event, you give them a sample of a, any file of yours that is encrypted, and they will send you back the master private key and their own decryption 
uh, executable, which you then run on your machine to get wow. your files back. Such good so, news. That's amazing. Yeah, very, very yeah. cool. And, you know, I mean, it, it's it's nice that we have this sort of conclusion to, to this interesting drama. I'm not sure. I mean, I'm not sure how many people this will help. If, for example, people went to a backup that was old but kept had the wisdom to keep their encrypted files and the old backup caused them to lose some data, now they have the ability to get that data back. So if anybody, for example, had to fall back to a backup or, or it suffered a catastrophic, you know, loss of data, you know, and we, we, we were hearing stories about, uh, what was it, like police uh, police stations where yeah. all the machines got... In Massachusetts it, or somewhere, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, they just wiped them out. Now, let me all, ask everything... you, Andy German asked a good question, or Adam German. Didn't they, de- didn't they say if you don't pay us in 72 hours, we delete the key? They did, but apparently, apparently that was not the case. Because, <laughs> good. Because they, d- they found all the keys. That's awesome. And so that, they don't charge huge. for this service at decryptolocker.com, right? It's free. No, absolutely free. That's great. Absolutely free. Uh, the, the, the FireEye guys said, to help solve the problem of victims' files still being encrypted, we leveraged our close partnership with Fox IT. We developed a decryption assistance website and corresponding tool designed to help those afflicted with the original CryptoLocker malware. Through various partnerships, they're, they're a little coy about this. They said, through various partnerships and reverse engineering engagements... Fox IT and FireEye have ascertained many of the private keys associated with CryptoLocker. Having these private keys allows for decryption of files that are encrypted by CryptoLocker. So, um, and in fact, I have some links in the show notes. There was a a really great write-up and sort of a backgrounder about CryptoLocker's last year of history um, that FoxIT.com blogged. Um, let's see, uh, six days six days ago. So you could go blog.fox-it.com and probably find it that way too. It was the ran- CryptoLocker Ransomware Intelligence Report. Had neat charts and graphs and, and geographical information and all kinds of stuff. So if anyone's interested, uh, that's a great uh, resource. Meanwhile... Um, the New York Times reported and a bunch of other news outlets picked up on the news that a, a Milwaukee-based security firm named Hold IT uh, released the news that there was a Russian crime ring that had amassed the largest known collection of stolen Internet credentials, um, which upon analysis, reduced to 1.2 billion username and password combinations uh, in encompassing more than 500 million email addresses. Uh, This hold IT or the hold security guys said that by July, which is last month, the criminals had collected 4.5 billion records, each a username and password Though many overlapped, after sorting through the data, Hold Security found that 1.2 billion of those records were unique. Because people tend to use multiple emails, they filtered further and found that the criminal's database included about 
542 million unique email addresses. So here's what's going on because they've managed to figure out um, a lot about how, how this happened. First of all, it's a hack, a small hacking ring based in a, a little uh, city in uh, south central Russia, flanked by Kazakhstan and Mongolia, uh, with fewer than a dozen kids in their 20s uh, who, who have personal relationships, not virtual. They're, they know each other personally, so it's a tight-knit group. They've created a series of PC-based botnets which infect people's computers. And as those infected users visit websites, the, the bot running in the machine performs a background SQL injection vulnerability test. And if a site responds to a SQL database injection, it's flagged and reported back to headquarters. And then the team goes in and sucks out the entire database. So it's a very clever sort of two-phase strategy. They've got just widespread malware in a botnet, which is probing based on the, the, the habits of the users whose machine it is infected. It sits there, and as, as, as the individuals visit websites, that's the source of, of potential compromised web servers. So background SQL injections are performed uh, to see if, if the database, if the background, if, if the, if the um, uh, I've forgotten the term, the back room, not back room, the back, back end. Back end. Okay. Yes. <laughs> the back end. Okay. If the We're back, getting if old, the Steve. End, <laughs> nine years we've been doing this. <laughs> if the back end database is avail is is like is accessible through the uh, the web UI, that information gets sent back. Then, and then this is what's so cool is that simple test makes this site a candidate, and then humans rather than any kind of automated system, they, I mean, they, you know, each one is an opportunity and a challenge. So they go there and perform, you know, use human driven and an analysis to figure out the table name the, the and, and all of the record names and so forth in order to suck this thing dry. As a consequence, the profile of the identities in this 1.2 billion user name and password collection is very different. It's not just Fortune 500, you know, big name sites. It's tiny websites. And when you think about it, that's beginning to be the, the bigger Achilles heel. Because even though the big guys have been compromised, they've got budgets and security teams and all that. But all these mom and pop sites um, tend to just use drop-in packages, which are much less secure, you know, turn the key up, it's, you know, it's, and, and everyone's excited when it starts to work and they don't worry about security. But the problem, of course, is that to the degree that the typical internet user reuses 
their logon credentials. The vulnerability is that they've re- they've used their login credentials you know, on a site that you know is insecure, some small little site on the internet, but also use them for their banking site or for some you know for other major sites that really matter. And so as a consequence, we have essentially credentials, email addresses, usernames and passwords to 1.2 billion of them um, that might be repurposed and and reused. So that that's what's going on behind this news of, you know, this massive uh, 1.2 billion uh, large uh, credential database. I'll be honest, I was a little skeptical when I first heard the story because Holden Securities charging people a fairly hefty fee to see if they're in the database, right? 250 no, bucks. No kidding. Yeah. $250? Yeah. Wow. Unless I, I may be completely wrong, but that's what I, that was my understanding. Uh, and so I was skeptical. Brian Krebs did say, I've seen it. It's real. I know uh, whatever his name, his name is Hold. Uh, but, uh, yeah. So Brian Krebs has vouched for him, and uh, you know I, I think that, that, I, I, that's I enough for me. Yes, mm. for me too. But I thought that was odd. Boy, that's disappointing. Yeah, seems like yeah. that. But that's how they make their living, I guess. But yeah, and, and I did. I, I ran across some references to the, the, this guy, uh, the whole security guy, sort of operating the way Brian does. We talked about you know how I mean Brian really does spend time. He invests time in the underground i mean dealing with this and i got the sense from the from from the research i did that that the holding security guy is doing the same thing he's 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 cultivated relationships over time no doubt using a pseudonym of course you know but he's gotten himself into this and been able to pull out this intelligence uh, you know, again, it's it's a mixed blessing that he's charging that well, kind of money. He says, you know, he's charging for the hold security electronic identity monitoring and protection service, but uh, okay. I believe you has to pay for it uh, to find out if you're on that list. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. It's his business. I have mixed feelings about it. It's his business. In the past, when this kind of stuff has been uncovered, people have published, you know. But but that costs money. You put online, you know, you type in your email address and we'll let you know if you're in the database, that kind of thing. But that costs money, so. Yeah. Um, Well, I guess it's it's his right to do that uh, if he chooses to. Now, one of the things that came up, of course, is in the wake of this, sites were saying, were advising listeners uh, or, you know, uh, readers, the only thing you could do now is change all of your passwords on all all of the websites that you visit. And it's like, oh my lord, okay. And I mean, and I've had people asking me, do, do I have to do that? It's like, well, I don't know. You know, I'm looking at it now. Apparently, for individuals, it's quite a few hoops you have to just jump through. But Hold Security is saying that they will check free of charge for an individual. So I'm going to try it, and I'll let you know. I'll probably have a okay. – yeah. But you have to register and give me your email and blah, 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 blah. Uh, okay. Blah, 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 blah. So okay, – but except you have to listen to this because we want to talk about okay. Google. Um, so they're, they've blogged that um, that they're going to – and I don't – if our, for, for our listeners who don't already know, this is interesting. 
um, I think, that they're going to start adding weighting, weighting, W-E-I-G-H-T-I-N-G, of search results based on whether sites are supporting HTTPS connections. So uh, what they blogged was, for now, it's only a very lightweight signal affecting fewer than 1% of global queries and carrying less weight than the many other signals such as high-quality content. While we, while we give webmasters time, isn't that gracious of Google, <laughs> to switch to HTTPS, but over time, we may decide to strengthen it because we'd like to encourage all website owners to switch from HTTP to HTTPS to keep everyone safe on the web. So I'm of two minds about this, Leo, as I imagine any sophisticated person would be. It's like, well, I mean, this really is Google using their formidable search strength and position in the industry to sort of push a policy onto the web. Well, not a bad policy, but still one that's not free. I mean, HTTPS is not free. Uh, you know, it, you got to buy a credential and you got to renew it constantly. And you better not forget or suddenly no one can get to your site, you know, after your certificate expires. Yeah, we talked about this on Twit on Sunday as well. And my issue is I, for instance, twit.tv... There's no reason to encrypt traffic. You're coming there, it's read-only, to see what's on. Right. Or to get a link, or to find out who Steve Gibson is. I can, is there a reason I should make that HTTPS? No. There's nothing to protect. No. I, I, I completely agree. And I mean, now, and what so Google says, it, it's, it only slightly impacts the weighting. You know, like 1%. Seems to me you either do it or you don't. I mean, you either weight pages at, so that they're going to, I mean, the, the, the idea is they're going to appear ahead of, you know, secure pages are going to appear ahead of less secure. Now, I don't like the tone of this blog post, frankly. I mean, that's what sort of annoys me is that like this sense of entitlement they have, obviously they can use whatever algorithms they want, but I liked it better when I first heard this before I found out what they were saying about it is it made sense to me from the standpoint of maybe a weak quality metric you know maybe I mean because here here's Google the reason they've achieved the prominence they have is you know that uh, the re the original incredible quality of links inbound to a site the original Google search ranking algorithm that was brilliant and and is you know immediately gave google global domination on search was that they figured out how to do this so so it seemed to me that maybe a one of the metrics that you could mix into a i mean a valid a valid search quality result would be is the site secure arguing that better sites will you know whatever that means and that's the problem is you can start getting into this um you know 
spend the money to to add security. And so for a bot that has no other way, I mean, you know, th- this is all automated. So here's, you know, the bots are looking at links and trying to not be spammed and, and looking at, you know, keywords and all the different things that, that the, the Google system uses. So it made sense to me that whether the pages are being delivered over a secure connection could be one more signal, as they use the term, to help in ranking a site. You know, but the idea that they're saying, well, we want to incur, we want to like, this is literally being done because we're going to force security on the web by down ranking sites that don't have it. It's like, okay. You know, um, and we 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 support HTTPS everywhere. We but we talk about that, and we've talked about it before, and we think it's a good thing. But to change search rankings based on that seems odd. I know. I yeah. yeah. It seems a little bit like they're pushing a policy. You know, you one know, thing, yeah, which they shouldn't be doing. Right. One thing that could maybe make this better is if they became a certificate authority and started issuing free TLS certificates. How about that? So say that they didn't like colored backgrounds. Right. You know, it's right. like, <laughs> you know, you've got an animated think, uh, GIF on that front page. We're going to downgrade yeah, you. And, and, you know, we really, we think we need white. Yeah. We really don't want any color. So it's like, oh, okay. I, I mean, you know, I, I mean, again, in general, it seems like it's could, a good thing. What could but, be wrong? But security's right. not free. Right. It's not free. And so we're saying you got to pay money. Now you got to pay money in order to compete in Google rankings is what this comes down to. How much is it? Now, you you get an extended cert, which is very expensive. But how I much get, is it? I do the... It's, it's several hundred dollars. Yeah. I mean, if I'm just every a blogger, I'm not going to pay several hundred dollars every few years. I'm not making that much money. I'm just doing and, this for fun. And most don't. It's right. why we're still in a world where, there, where, you know, security is there when you need it, when you want some credential protection, but otherwise it's not. And remember, you know, from time to time... When these certs expire, I mean, there's there's it'll break. Things. There's yeah, yeah. Su- significant overhead yeah. that it never goes away. Yeah. Where you got to remember that you know to to pay your money every couple of years. Um, yeah. Anyway, so I mean, th- th- there are uh, what is it? Start TLS, I think it is. Is a no. <laughs> That's, a, that's an email protocol. There, there are a couple free cert providers. They don't do any checking. The cert, uh, actually, I'm not even sure that it's recognized now by web browsers. It's no I better remember. than a self-signed cert. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So that's that's not mm. going to help you either. No, I mean, it, it really does say, you know, we're gonna we're make we're gonna make you pay in order to have comparable uh, page ranks. And so, I don't know. That seems bad. Yeah. It, it kind of bugged us on the panel too. Yeah. Uh, on Sunday. Hey, I so I got my uh, official ah. uh, membership at Hold Hold Security, and cool. so now here's what happens: uh, you have to enter in passwords, and what? they'll see. Yeah, and they'll see whether the password is in the database. It says we'll never ask you for passwords, except that's what it looks like they're doing. The form. <laughs> The form below provides you with the ability to encrypt your passwords using SHA-512, which makes it impossible to decode. Once you receive the hashes of your passwords, we'll compare them with the hashes we have and notify you. Well, which, okay. That's okay, I, I guess. Yeah, except, you know, I don't like this guy. Uh, it feels funny. I'm not going to give him any passwords. 
So that was, I felt the whole thing felt a little odd. And by the way, yeah, Brian Krebs is on his uh, webpage as an advisor. So I just, the whole thing is. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think he's legit, but, you know, it's, uh, it just seems like a lot to jump, a lot of hoops right. to jump through. You know, now he wants to, to, I mean, because he's managed to leverage this information, which he has the right to do with what he chooses. Right. Um, he wants to make money, so right. and he's now got oh. my email address. I've I had to give it to him. Ah, oh, no, that's right. In order to it. get, yeah. Uh huh. Okay, so there was an interesting piece of news that uh, that I just thought was that, that I that I was led to do some research on that uh, indicated that Apple's iOS eight change where they were going to start randomizing Wi-Fi Mac addresses that we talked about resulted in, in a third of a company's employees being terminated. And it's like, what? And Recode picked up on this. Uh, it's a company called Nomi, N-O-M-I, uh, which is kind of an interesting, you know, no, well, because what they are is they're a tracking intelligence company and uh, the, uh, Recode said Nomi a startup that has raised 13 million in venture capital has laid off at least 20 of its 60 or so employees in part because of the forthcoming changes according to sources and so I, I dug around a little bit you know, and we, we talked about how this a, a neat feature uh, that would be incorporated into iOS 8 was that before you had an association, a Wi-Fi um, access point association between your phone typically or pad and that access point, um, it turns out that it is an industry practice to track people based on their Wi-Fi MAC addresses as they roam around. I mean, that's, you know with their wi-fi turned on and so there are businesses that have have that are doing this and it turns out that's absolutely the case this nomi company is installing wi-fi systems in retail establishments and selling the service of letting retailers know when people revisit their store when someone and then you know generating reports for which they pay and when so when someone comes back in the store they'll they'll say hey somebody you know you're getting a certain percentage of traffic that of like every two, two days every three days every four days and so forth and they provide that intelligence by seeing that the same phone comes back into the store so clearly um this is what Apple is saying no to. Well, what Apple is saying yes to is iBeacon. And so when I when I actually dug down, it turns out that it is that Nomi has switched to deploying Bluetooth tracking, which is easier to set up and requires fewer employees. So so it's Aww. not that they're it's <laughs> just maybe not the best business model. How about that? Yeah, that too. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Anyway, uh, okay, potato chips, Leo. Love them. Mm, they're delicious. Yeah, they are. That's the salt. Um, so, 
and the, and the fat. And the <laughs> together, and the fat. together at last. And, and the carbs. Oh, my God. Oh, my, my favorite three things. So uh, MIT has teamed up with Microsoft and Adobe. And at the upcoming SIGGRAPH uh, conference, which is the biggest, I mean, it's been going on forever. SIGGRAPH is, I don't know how many decades of years it's been happening. But, I mean, it, there was SIGGRAPH back when I was, you know, oh, yeah. programming the, P, the, the yeah. PDP. 20 years at least, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, or 40. I mean, like, really, yeah. it's it's been there forever. Well, it stands um, for the... Uh Graphics Special Interest Group. Exactly. Um, okay, so this freaked people out, but there's good news here. So the headline was uh, the, it was in an, in a set of experiments, these researchers at, at MIT, Microsoft, and Adobe developed an algorithm that can reconstruct an audio signal by analyzing minute vibrations of objects depicted in video. In one set of experiments, they were able to recover intelligible speech from the vibrations of a potato chip bag photographed 15 feet away through soundproof glass. Wow. In other experiments, they extracted usable audio from vibrations of aluminum foil the surface of a glass of water, like the, you know, the vibrations we've all seen on, you know, like when Godzilla's footstep lands and we get that. Or actually, I guess it was uh, Jurassic Park that we saw the, Here, the here's an audio the water uh, vibrating example. This is sound played for the you speaker in the room. In slow motion and then they took video of the plant leaf, which also vibrates, and they yep. recreated it. This is still to the naked eye. so they were playing Mary has a little lamb. Let me let me see if I can jump ahead to the actual. That's the sound recovered from the video. It's a little noise, but it's intelligible. I've heard speech. You can actually detect speech. Okay, now here's the good news. Nyquist is our friend. Oh, thank God. Harry Nyquist. <laughs> yes. Um, don't think I've ever mentioned him before. Name dropped, old Harry. Um, you know how disturbing it is when the wagon wheels appear to be spinning backwards? Yes. In the westerns. Yes. Well, that's, of course, caused by the fact, by the interaction between the frame rate of the camera and the spinning spokes. Um, what Nyquist observed was that you had to sample at least twice the rate of the frequency that you wanted to resolve. So um, another way to visualize this, imagine a, a disc with a, like a black disc with a white dot out on one edge and it's spinning. And, how, and if you are going to take a snapshot of it, how often do you have to get a snapshot in order to like have a sense like a true sense for the rotation of the disc turns out you have to do it at at least twice the frequency or the, or the speed of the disc rotating otherwise you get an aliasing effect as it's called in sampling theory so what they failed to mention in the headline is that they had to use high-speed video photography 
at 2,000 to 6,000 frames per second. And when you, the moment you hear that, you think, of course, there, I mean, speech is of that, in that frequency range. Like 1,000 hertz or somewhere. Yeah. Exactly. And so. 1,000 kilohertz. Yeah, we have our vocal cords, which is generating a high harmonic content. And then our, and formants, as they're called, through our throat, which form bandpass filters to create speech. So you need to have, so, so, so standard webcams or surveillance cameras or anything is 60 frames maximum, often lower. You know, you see the like, like still frames with people moving through them because they're, they're, they're trying to, to minimize the amount of storage that they require. So the point is, no normal cameras can be used to eavesdrop on you. The normal cameras, 60 frames per second, might be able to maybe identify the gender of someone's speech, maybe the number of speakers by doing speaker discrimination within a room, but nothing like recover, like, you know, eavesdropping on you. It, it's worth knowing that they can do it with high-speed video. So... So again, it it might be that that for for a surveillance application, this would make sense. Where, although frankly, we have much better ways to do that. We beat we, we bounce a laser beam off the glass and we use uh, interferometry uh, on, on on the 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 round trip distance of the laser beam, and there you get you know instant real time speech recovery. So this was a little more of a stunt. You know, interesting that they did this. But, you know, it's not like all of our privacy has immediately been breached by webcams and, and surveillance. Here's, the, uh, uh, here's what cameras. it sounds like with a uh, 60 uh, frame per second DSLR playback, the recovered sound. <laughs> it's the same, you know, nice. Mary had a little lamb. You get a little bit of something, but not... Name that tune. <laughs> For $400, Alex. Yeah. It's interesting, though. I mean, it's a fun little hack. Yeah. Oh, no, again, I, I think it's neat that they did it, but I but the headlines all said, you, you know, your your potato chips are spying on you. It's like, uh, okay, you know, just yeah. reality check time here on the Security Now podcast. Uh, LastPass had an outage this morning. Uh, they blogged the, the 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 blog entry that I saw from LastPass said that at three something I think it was like three fifty three a.m. and I maybe I could think that was Eastern time so for us on the West Coast around twelve or almost um, uh, you know one a.m. three Pacific I think it's three a.m. Eastern yeah noon okay midnight our time yeah. Yeah, um, that something happened. What they said was that one of their data centers, where which they clearly depend upon more than I think they should, died, and that unfortunately took out. I'm sure you know everybody in the data center. One customer of whom was LastPass. Um, they're back up, and I'm not sure if when I used my LastPass, they were already up. It seemed like their website had a harder problem than their their background data uh, sourcing. Um, we'll have to see what the upshot is. I'll do. I'll, I'll see if I can uh, drop a note to Joe 
and ask him, you know, like for the whole the whole story. Maybe we can talk about it more next week. Um, there was a lot of of Twitter traffic. Um, oh, I saw it. Oof. Wow. Chatting about this. Yeah. yeah. People, you know, not at all happy that their their cloud service was out. And so I hope that that the LastPass folks will will strengthen their cloud provisioning uh, in order to make this less important. Of course, then this is a lesson about the cloud. And this is one that we've discussed here all the time is, you know, TNO encryption, such as LastPass employs, prevents your data from being decrypted and stolen, but it doesn't prevent the cloud from disappearing. I mean, so so backing up is a great application where so so long as the data is there when you need to recover it. But it's a little more problematical. I mean, the whole cloud model is a little dicey when you need really robust real-time access, you know, like documents online, like editing documents. I, you know, I, I've had like spreadsheets sort of lock up on me in, in, in Google Sheets, you know, and where it says trying to reconnect. And I think, oh, please do, you know, because, you know, I'm using the cloud. And so it's, there's a mixed blessing aspect to it. Should you choose to, uh, I should point out, you can back up, and maybe people should do this, your LastPass uh, database. You can export yes. it to a LastPass yes. CSV, which I presume is unencrypted, a LastPass encrypted file, and that you can use in, in offline mode. So Yes, and there's also LastPass Pocket, which is an alternative, Yeah, which is the same thing. And so, yes, I, I, I think if we're going to take a lesson from this, it's... Use the cloud synchronization. I mean, and we've never had a problem before, but so this is, you know, this was a multi-hour outage, um, and that can happen. And and obviously logging into websites is is very crucial for people. I'll note that Squirrel doesn't have that problem because uh, it does it doesn't use any third-party connection at all. It's just you and the website you want to log into. So uh, we're getting there. Um. And uh, Tech News Today had an interesting piece I just wanted to call our listeners' attention to. Um, and that was there was another Comcast fiasco uh, that, uh, that you guys covered this morning, Leo. Yeah. Uh, where, where only because the caller had recorded his original conversation with Comcast – where Comcast promised that if he did his own relocation of his service when he was moving, there would be no charge. And so he did that, and everything was fine for a while, and then there were problems. And so somebody came out from Comcast and fixed, like, outside problems, nothing to do with his own work and his relocation and so forth. And then he got hit with like, I don't know, I don't remember the number, $181 or something on his next bill. And so he contested that and they refused, absolutely refused to take it off and said there was nothing that they could do and blah, blah, blah. And he said, look, I have a recording of you telling me there will be no charge. Now, you cannot then reverse yourself and charge me. I have you recorded telling me there will be no charge. 
So um, the takeaway, I think, is that you really should record your conversations with Comcast. I mean, that's just like, you know, for safety. They're, they're so bad, you should record them. And one of the, the guests on the show said in 18 states in the U.S., there is a law called all-party consent, which requires everybody who's a party to a recording to, to know that. And so I think you should start your Comcast dialogue with, you know, with the declaration. You, you should say, hey, I just want to let you know, Comcast person, that we are, I am recording this conversation. So you've been notified that this is being recorded. I know you're recording me, so I just want to let you know I'm recording you too. Just in case it should ever be necessary. Yeah, it's uh, California is what they call a two-party state, and uh, so I, I do know the law for our state because uh, being in radio, you have to know that. Ah. The way the rule is, you need only notify them. You need not get them to assent. Nice. Their assent is inferred from the fact that they stay on the line. So as long as it's clear, if you just say, "Hey, I'm recording this now. Here's what I'd like to do." That's all they have to do. In fact, Comcast doesn't nice. get your assent either. They say this call will be monitored for recording per or recorded for monitoring purposes. Right. Uh, in fact, most calls, Apple does, everybody does this. So it's fine for you to uh, to do it. Uh, if you live in a two-party state, which, as you've mentioned, many of us do, uh, it's just prudent to say, I'm recording this and continue on. You don't need yeah. them to say, okay. Yeah, and I think from, from the experience that we're having, uh, th th that we're seeing, it makes sense. Because, I mean, it can end up being handy to yeah. have a recording of, of their original commitments yeah. and promises. Even and if you don't, don't record it, just say, I'm recording this. It might work. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, the, the don't we know from the first instance, what, what, was it Ryan who had this happen to him? Yeah, Ryan Block, uh, yeah. Yeah. Don't we know that the employee on the other end has a financial stake yes. in the outcome? Yes. And that's what I think is so slimy. Is that they, I mean they're they're on the hook for the money they cost Comcast. So of course they don't care about. I mean, can you imagine? It's like a a police officer who starts his career and he's going to go out there and do good, and he's just a neat cop. And after thirty years of on the job, he's just ruined. I mean, you know his his spirit is broken. His faith <laughs> in humanity is destroyed, and. That just must happen to Comcast employees after some length of time. Is they, what a horrible they just, job. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what the, you remember the original Ryan Block call, the rep tried to get him to cancel at the Comcast store. So his, his really yes. his one and only purpose was not on Don't my do watch. it on this call. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I announced last week that I had just turned the first squirrel code over to the news group gang the day or the evening before the podcast. Uh, it went very smoothly. Uh, they found a bunch of, you know, little UI things, like I had back buttons that were enabled when you should not be able to go back and you know, that kind of thing. Uh, all, those are all fixed. Um, I just dropped another piece of code yesterday that has the identity export stuff uh, just in file format done. I'm now going to work on the QR code encoding so that 
I can display the identity on the screen so you can you can pick it up with your smartphone in order to transfer the identity to other devices. Uh, so we're just moving ahead beautifully with that. Uh, and I did find in the in my mailbag uh, a nice note uh, from Joe White, and he tell he helped me pronounce where he lives. It's Honey Apath, and I believe me from H O N E A Path. I would not have gotten Honey Apath. So in South Carolina, thank you, Joe. He said he said uh, a resurrection at a funeral home. Uh, okay. And so he said, hey, Stephen Leo, thanks for the show. I've been through the archives and digested them all, he has in asterisks. I'm a funeral director at a small family funeral home. And being, being in a family business means wearing many hats. IT is one of my hats. One of our main workstations went down a couple of weeks ago, refusing to recognize its hard drive any longer. And, of course, we know where this is going. I brought in my personal copy of Spinrite. Let it do its thing at level two and presto. Workstation began working again. Our massive list of Outlook contacts has been saved from destruction. I've imaged the drive just to be safe. But it appears that the level two scan has resolved it to useful, has restored it to useful service. Our thanks to you, Steve, for turning our mourning into gladness. And then he says, I think a site license purchase a site license purchase is in order, which, Joe, I would certainly appreciate. Yay. So thanks very much for yes. sharing that. Yes. Uh, let's uh, take a little break, and we have questions for you if you're ready. Absolutely. You've prepared them, so I would presume, uh. <laughs> presume you are. It'd be like saying, are you ready to drink that cup of coffee now? Well, yes, I made it. Uh, before it gets cold. Before it gets cold. So have a sip while we talk a little bit about ZipRecruiter.com. This is their first time on the show, I think. Yeah. Um, and they're a great company. We we used them uh, when we were trying to fill a position here at the Brick House. The problem when you're, you know, I mean, the Internet has really changed the job hunt uh, landscape as it's changed everything else. And now with all with so many job boards out there, you would think, well, it's easy to find somebody. I just go to a job board. But which job board? Everyone's different. Everyone has different, you know, uh, strengths and weaknesses. Wouldn't it be nice if you could post to every job board with a single click of the mouse? Well, you can. I guess you probably figured that out now. ZipRecruiter.com slash security now. ZipRecruiter will post your job on all the top job sites, plus Craigslist, LinkedIn, and Twitter, all with one click of the mouse. They help you in other ways, too. Uh, they'll they'll create a... Uh, a page for you uh, that is about your careers that you can integrate into your website. Uh, they'll give you a very simple uh, way to review your applications because, as you might imagine, you're going to get a lot of uh, applicants pouring in. You can find candidates in any city, any industry, nationwide with one single post. But ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface helps you qualify those candidates, screen them, rate them, hire the right person fast. Over 200,000 businesses, including Twit have used ZipRecruiter to solve that problem. ZipRecruiter.com. They're social, too. Right now, you could try ZipRecruiter free for four days. Visit ZipRecruiter.com slash security now. ZipRecruiter.com slash security now. You could try it absolutely free. 
just remember to uh, to make sure that you go to that special page just for you. It really is a cool idea. ZipRecruiter.com. It's it's kind of like a meta job posting. So, so if you're if you're listening to too many podcasts because you are currently unemployed, then <laughs> no, this is for then, hiring somebody. I don't. You know, oh, that's for a, hiring somebody. Well, wait a minute. No, I'm wrong. You can. You know what? We've never talked about it. But if you go to the job seekers section on ZipRecruiter.com, you can also find a job. We never nice. mentioned that. But, in fact, ZipRecruiter works both ways. So, as always, Steve Gibson he cuts right <laughs> through to the meat of the matter. Whether you're, yeah, if you're listening to too many podcasts, ZipRecruiter.com slash security now. All right. I'm ready with some questions for you, Mr. Steve Arino. Yeah, we got a good mix-up right. uh, today. I think they're good. This one comes from uh, Twitter, at Nick Gustafson. Uh, he uh, tweets, what do you use for a password complexity formula in Squirrel? Huh? He's, got, he's gone beyond my, my limited means. I need something similar, and I cannot find anything great. So, what does he mean, a formula meant, to validate a password? None. Well, sort of. Um, the next question, we'll talk about how we feel about that. Okay. But so... So here I was, and I mentioned this briefly last week. Um, I wa- I I wanted some I, I, the, the squirrel needs a password, one password, in the same way that LastPass does, which you use to authenticate yourself to Squirrel. Squirrel will then authenticate you globally um, and securely. But we we need at, at this point in in time where we don't have have a like a, on a regular PC a way of making sure that the client knows it's us we need to log in to squirrel essentially yeah. so i'm so i prompt the user after they create an identity for a password which they will use when they want it, when they want to unlock squirrel essentially to let it stand in for them and do their authentication so i i think password strength meters are currently the best solution the problem is What's a strong password? You know, what's the, how do we define that? And I, I, when I was thinking about this, I was, it's a little bit about, about that famous quote from the Supreme Court judge who was commenting on pornography where he said, well, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. And, and so a password is – originally I was thinking that I would include, for example, a dictionary of – a thousand of the most common passwords. The problem is Squirrel is going to be supported in 60 different languages. And boy, that's a project that I don't want is generating, you know, the most common, finding the most common passwords in all of those different languages. So I thought, okay, I need something simple and algorithmic. I, I have to satisfy myself with, you know, doing the best job that, that, a, a, a simple algorithm can do. So I have a strength meter and I do, I run a, ra- a rather simple formula, which I like because I think it does, and, you know, as the, as, as the user is putting in a password and experimenting very much the way the, uh, the password haystacks site op- uh, operates, it shows you what you've got. And so here's, here's what I thought of. It's a simple algorithm anyone could apply when, you, when you're all able to play with the Squirrel client. I mean, they, they're playing with it right now over in the news group. So it's working, and they've been playing with this aspect of it. I take 
the number of characters. So just the, the overall length of the password. That's one parameter. Then I take the number of unique characters. So having more different characters is better than many of the same. That, I mean, it's not, it's not just black and white, but that's another parameter, is how many unique characters you have. Then I take the, I, I take the characters and divide them into five classes, digits, lowercase uh, a through z, uppercase a through z, then anything remaining that's less than 128, which will be all the other special characters and control characters. And then if it's greater than 128, and that will just, that'll generally be, you know, all of the, everything else in Unicode space. So five classes. Then I count the character class transitions. That is, as you go through the password, how many changes in class? So uppercase to lowercase, uh, you know, alphabetic to numeric, alphabetic to, to special character and so forth. So every boundary between classes gets counted. So that's going to... heuristically, which is what this is, this is a heuristic, heuristically, staying in a class doesn't buy you as much strength as changing classes, whether it's case or number to special character to alpha and so forth. And then I have a formula. The total count plus the total number of unique characters plus two times the number of transitions, class transitions. And that's my complexity metric, which is shown on a bar graph as the user is entering their password. And it lo- seems to be pretty effective. It's, um, it's not perfect. I recognize that. But I needed, I needed something to encourage people to put in a, you know, a, a strong enough password. And in fact, you've got to push that bar up to a certain point in order, it's it it changes temperature as you as you make a stronger password. It goes from red through yellow and orange into green, changing color and growing in length. And finally, when you get enough, it enables the submit button. So it won't let you use a really bad password. There is no formal. It must be this long or it must have contained these number of things. That's, as we know, that's a problem because it allow it provides an attacker with an attack pattern if they know what your criteria is. This doesn't have that. This just says, eh, in general, these are the characteristics of a strong password. And so I implemented that with a rather simple and easy to use heuristic, which anyone could do, for example, in JavaScript if they wanted to help people develop a good password. You know, we've never talked about, I don't think, the famous XKCD uh, horse stapler <laughs> password. <laughs> Great cartoon. Cartoon. Yeah. And I, I you know, the, the, the premise of it is 
that there's more entropy in four random common words than there is in a a, a shorter but more random password. Is that accurate? Is that good no. advice? No, no. Um, I mean, it, it's not a it's not a bad thing, except that it, it certainly subjects you to dictionary attack, where you have all those words in a dictionary and you would try combinations of them. There's a lot of them, but it's still fewer than, I mean, again, it's a trade-off. Would it be better if you added some numbers at the end or used random punctuation between the four words? Or? Yes. Surprise is a good thing, Leo. Ah, Think of it as the word. Surpri yeah. surprise is, is, is always useful in a password. So add some surprise. <laughs> the, the, I guess XKCD's point is you at least you can remember correct horse battery staple, uh, whereas you know a, a random password might not be so easy to remember. But that's what we have right. LastPass for. The, yeah, exactly. And the problem, of course, is once you acc acclimate yourself to that phrase, you will tend to use it on all yeah. your different sites. And that's not safe either yeah. because the Russians, among their 1.2 billion passwords, is that one with your email address and if you reused it you, you they could get into you into your accounts somewhere else yeah, yeah. in fact xkcd just did something where he referred to haystacks um oh good uh, yeah cuz you know i think everybody knows that comic and it's become like lore it's become ur urban legend it's uh, a res received truth and yeah. it isn't exactly right it's really it's better than you know monkey but it's yeah. you know it's just ba basically four monkeys uh in a row <laughs> uh carl in chicago argues that password as we mentioned password strength meters aren't such a good idea all i'll say in terms of praise is i've been a listener since episode one that means carl you were at least nine years old yeah when discussing passwords in the past and their use in squirrel you know, we refer to Squirrel a lot. This is Steve's very clever and now implemented method of logging into a website, not via password, but by something else, a QR yep. code or the like, right? We will, as soon as this thing is done, we will do another podcast on it when, we, when I'll actually have it and you'll be able to do it. You'll be able to... It solves to, this whole password issue. Completely. It's over. It's just... Not a problem anymore. The only negative is the sites have to adopt it. We got to get everybody to Correct. do it. Correct. And that's another challenge. Given Correct. The, given there's so many sites where they say it can only be eight letters and there has to be one number. Uh, but no punctuation. <laughs> anyway, yeah. when discussing passwords in the past and their use in Squirrel, it seems like you've generally settled on the idea of having a meter to evaluate password strength. That's one of those on-screen little bars that goes green when you've got a good enough password. Generally, I'm not a fan of these for the following reasons. One, I think it probably gives users, especially uninformed ones, a false sense of security and focuses their intention on getting a green bar rather than understanding what a strong password is. I'll actually vouch for that. If I don't uh -huh. get a green bar, I, I, I keep going. I think it's extraordinarily difficult to determine if a specific password is actually strong. What may seem like a good password, for example, 1000 underscore elm underscore street number 501, might be easily crackable if it turns out to be based on your address. Huh. <laughs> or maybe it was generated during, using a heuristic that can easily be deduced or has been seen or used elsewhere. The simple passage of time may also 
weaken a password as hardware continues to advance and crackers continue to refine their knowledge from compromised password databases. That's the chief issue with that billion password database. Yes. Oh, what a trove of, of intelligence. Yeah. yeah. It's not so much that they got your password. It's that they understand be much better how passwords. They got everybody's password. Everybody's, they got everybody's. <laughs> so while we know the qualities of a strong password, it's a difficult thing to quantify. As you said, I'll know it when I see it. Ultimately, the strength of a specific password boils down to one thing. How long does it take to crack it? And obviously, we can't know that, that unless we try. Consequently, unless we're prepared to run a user's password through today's current password cracking programs and perhaps continue to do so periodically, I think any certification of password strength will ultimately be just too simplistic to be effective. So here's what I've settled on. I, one, enforce a minimum character set, upper and lower case, for example, numbers and symbols. Enforce a minimum password length. 12 characters or more, for example, provide simple guidance on what makes a good, strong password, length, randomness, and uniqueness. Your thoughts? So I don't disagree with any of that. Uh, and, and I recognize that, as we've discussed and as I was just talking about, a password strength meter is a trade-off. What essentially... Um, uh, what Carl is suggesting here is the only way to test the strength of a password is to try to crack it. That is, use all of the, you know, use what a bad guy would use in order to crack a password and see whether it stands up to attack, which would be nice if it were practical, but it's not. And, and in, in many places, I don't think it's actually it's actually effective to try to teach somebody on the fly what a good password is i mean i, I so i so i think a site that it, that enforces a a strategy probably does that exactly as you said leo where you focus on getting the bar green it's like you just, you know, you do enough until it's <laughs> satisfied. Keep typing monkey till it goes green and you're done. <laughs> exactly. So, so it's like I, I, I completely agree that that it would be possible, for example, to arrange a weak pass. Well, actually, I'm not sure that it's possible to use a, what I would consider a weak password with my algorithm, because a weak password would have to be really long in order for only the length to get you to strength because changing character classes double is that um, is worth two points and unique characters themselves are worth another point in addition to length. So I think I came up with a good formula. I mean, it's again, it is a heuristic, um, but you know, you, you, we're, you're going to have a trade-off because you're trying to get you're, you're you're trying to help the user protect themselves, but they're not going to stand there and read a book about you know the science of password generation in order to do that. They just want to get done, and so it's a trade-off. I, I really like, and people should rewind and listen to your ex, your suggested uh, algorithm. I think you I think you nailed it. Nothing's perfect. I, I think it's. I think it's good, but it's but I think you got it, and you can tie that to a green bar. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, uh, and I have. I mean, as as you're doing it, it, it the, the, the bar is growing in length until it's long enough. Yeah. And you can experiment with it, and you see the length change as, as you go. Yeah, so you, You've been typing letters, and you suddenly type a percent sign, the bar's going to jump. It does. Yeah. Yes. And you go, ooh, we like that. <laughs> Let's try another percent sign. Not as good. Hmm. Exactly. How about a number? Two, ooh, two in a row. That worked. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> or just get LastPass for crying out loud. I just, you know, it's all solved if people just get a password manager that generates passwords. It's just, it's all for now, solved. For now, that's a solution. And the reason I don't feel badly about for like LastPass relative to Squirrel is, as you said, Leo, Squirrel's not going to take over the world overnight. You'll still it need needs it. To yeah. exi- it needs to exist. It, it will start getting adopted. Yeah. And, and the key, the cool thing is users only need one copy. You just get it. And when you as as you encounter sites that will that support Squirrel, you can use it. Right. And if and if they don't, then you fall back to LastPass or whatever password manager you've been using. So it'll it it can happen incrementally. I wish you could incorporate. I guess you don't need to Squirrel into LastPass. Somehow you need a flag in LastPass that would say, "Oh, it's a Squirrel site." Yeah, and Joe might very well build it in. I bet Joe it's, will. It's, sim- it's simple to do. Why wouldn't he? Yeah. Phil M. in Los Angeles, the city of angels, wonders about best practices for password management. Steve and Leo love the show. My question is about the frequency with which passwords should be changed. After that announcement about the billion passwords, many news outlets recommended that we change our passwords on all our accounts. I think they just uh-huh. they had the boilerplate left over in the type yeah. in the teleprompter. They just kind of pasted it back in. Since no specific companies have been named in this breach, what's your recommended action? And how often should passwords be changed as best practice? That's a good question, Phil. You know, yeah, it is a good question. And we, we, we've talked about it in different contexts through the years. I've never really understood the logic behind enforced password change. Um, that, that suggests that there's some long delay between the time that a password escapes your control and it's used. Now, I've seen this in spam. So I don't think the same model applies. I've noticed that old email addresses, which I often still have forward to new addresses, they get spam, but the new ones don't. So there does seem to be some weird multi-year delay between where it takes for things to finally filter out into spam lists. And so if you are changing your email address occasionally, you can stay ahead of that. That seems to be effective. Changing passwords, um, just that, 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 that seems so burdensome that I don't understand the logic behind it. Uh, I know that, you know, we've talked about it, like many companies have a, oh, every six months you must change your password. And it it annoys their employees so much that the employees go to great lengths to, like, circumvent that enforced password change. Because it doesn't make sense to them either. And they've memorized their password and now they're being forced to change it for no good reason. So, I, I don't know. It actually um, encourages bad passwords, I think. It does. I agree. Yeah. Um, you know, you add your a one to your password. It's, uh, you know, it, it, we and we've discussed this ad infinitum. We don't need to continue on. But uh, yep. 
there are certain circumstances where you would do that, and I think people just saw that and said, "Oh, well, a bank does it; I should do it." Um, not necessary. No. And, but but he asked he has two questions. One was, uh, uh, "Do you recommend changing your password because of this breach?" Wow. Um, you know, I feel a little bit like the attorney who always. Uh, gives advice that errs in the direction of right. caution because you know it could not. Hide. It's, it it's could not hide. your time. The attorney right. is spending. It's you right. know, I mean, it's not his time. He's spending it's we, your time. With so Heartbleed, like, we did recommend people change your passwords, right? On Heartbleed affected sites. Yeah, and this, and so, and, and certainly, if 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 we if if this was the typical database compromise of a given site like Twitter. It's like, oh, change your Twitter password. I mean, that that seems like clearly there the amount of effort you go to is is uh, is is going to return safety in measure. But telling people change every password that you have on the internet, oh, wow, no. you know, okay, that's yes, what it would have to be. Do. If 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 you want to be safe from this, you need if they might have your passwords. And we know nothing about which ones they have. I guess I guess you could go to to holding security and give them all your passwords. <laughs> no. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Not gonna do it. No. By the way, they only had room for like twenty. I have one for every site I go to. What am I supposed to do with that? That's a it's a useless form. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I you know it doesn't hurt to change your bank password every once in a while. The really the advice always comes back to use a password vault. Use KeyPass or Dashlane or LastPass, which is what we recommend, or 1Password. Then changing it is kind of trivial. So you could, still, it's a pain. It's a pain, but I mean, if, you, if, if you're worried, change your bank. You don't have to change everything. I'm not going to change my New York Times password. But uh, you might want to change your bank password. I think, and, there you go. That's it. I, 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 perfect. Change the critical ones. And and especially if you have not adopted the process or the practice of using separate passwords right. for important accounts. If you're sharing them across sites so that, you know, when you bought a toothbrush at Joe's, you know, wooden sticks site um, and you used your same credentials that you use for banking and then Joe's wooden sticks site might have a, an, a, a SQL injection vulnerability uh, – because they're just not that security conscious. This is the the problem is with this massive breach and the nature of the way these passwords were exfiltrated. The you know lower security sites are leaking potentially high security credentials. So exactly as you said, Leo, do it for the important sites. Yeah, for, and for, don't for the crucial sites. And another good reason to use a vault is so that you don't use the same password. That's a nice feature of. Right. LastPass, it'll audit and say, are you using the same password on this site as other sites? Do you want to change it? Right. That's great. That's, yep. you know, and as I, you know, sometimes I don't care, but most of the time when it says that, I change it. And I go, okay, yeah, yeah. that's a good idea. Not a bad idea. Uh, Omega Project actually has the best solution. He says, change your bank every 60 days. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, no money there. <laughs> That'll Welcome work. Welcome to log in. You won't get anything. Confuse the criminals. Just keep moving. DJ James in Maryland with a personal anecdote about USB in firmware. 
Your report reminded me of problems several years ago when buying memory devices from eBay. Unscrupulous sellers would change the firmware on MP3 players or USB memory products. For example, they'd take a 2-gigabyte MP3 player and have the firmware report 4 gigabytes or 8 gigabytes, and they sell it at a premium price. Player works fine until you load enough music to cross the 2-gigabyte boundary, and then, of course, files get corrupted as new files overwrote pieces of old one, and the whole thing's a mess. I was burned by one of these players, he says, and by the time I discovered the problem, the seller was long gone with my cash. I dismantled the unit and discovered the fraud by noting that, sure enough, the part numbers on the memory chips allowed for only two gigabytes of memory. I found a firmware modification tool on the web and changed the size back to two gigs so I could use the devices intended. Wow. Yeah. So this guy would have known about uh, this exploit. Yep. And I thought, so there were some interesting things. First of all, it has been done. It's been done to abuse people. Yeah. And there's a firmware mod tool floating around <laughs> that allows that to be changed for some devices. So there it all is. It's kind of my point last week, which is that if we had but thought about it, we would have realized bad USB was always a problem. Yeah. I mean, it was just like, oh, you mean... Fundamentally you can... a problem. Yeah. You, you, because because USB is so powerful. We are just trusting something. Yeah. We're trusting a computer that we're plugging into a port with with lots of privileges. Right. Duh. Duh. Uh, and it's got writable firmware. <laughs> <laughs> Software writable firmware. Phil Zeman's ports are no longer stealth, he's glad to report, from Wisconsin Rapids, Wisconsin. I recently moved and had to switch from a cable ISP to DSL. All of my ports except... 113 were stealthed with the cable provider. Almost all ports are closed with the DSL provider. I'm using the same router as it was set up for the cable ISP. Anything I can do to get back to stealth? Or is closed good enough? Okay, so here's what's going on. Uh, as we've talked about port 113 in years past, uh, that's the funky port which you need to... You, which your IP address needs to at least respond to uh, in order for some old protocol, some FTP servers, and uh, I think IRC uh, servers will try to do a lookup on 113 when you're attempting to log into them. So they just sort of do a reverse ping to see if you're there. If that is stealthed, you can have problems logging into those servers. So that's why that single port wasn't. That was actually probably uh, Phil's router that was smart enough to handle that correctly. And I remember back in the old days, Zone Alarm was smart enough to handle the 113 non-stealthing also. Actually, they did adaptive stealthing. They would, be, they would stealth port 113 unless the firewall saw that you had an open dialogue with the IP where the 113 test was packets were coming from, and then it would respond, which I thought was you know technical zone alarm or zone labs brilliance uh, back then. What's happening here with the switch to cable from cable to DSL is that when you had a cable connection, the the packets coming in uh, were actually hitting your router. If with no if not changing your router has changed has switched you from stealth to closed ports, those packets are not actually getting to you, Phil. 
your ISP, this DSL ISP, has some equipment which is responding to those packets on your behalf. So there's who knows what they're doing. They might have a NAT router. You might be NATed um, like in the DSL network so that there's another router between the Internet and you. That's actually a good thing. So um, I would imagine, for example, when you're using Shields Up, that you're not the shields up is not actually seeing your IP, the IP of your home router. It's seeing the IP of a NAT router where the packets are are hitting. It's that NAT router which is not stealthed. It's closed. So eh, you're fine. It, it, I mean, it, it really doesn't. It, it's not you whose ports are closed. It's some piece of equipment upstream of you that is responding to GRC's shields up probe packets. Um, and so it's just a different configuration. And nothing to worry about. Yeah. Ashley Black in Reading, Berkshire, United Kingdom, or is it Berkshire? Knows why VPNs get Netflix working. Hi, guys. I've been thinking about this for a week or two. Following on from the Level 3 Verizon spat and why users say that Netflix is being throttled because when they try it with a VPN... It works better. Here's what I think is actually happening. As everyone now knows and agrees, for whatever political reasons, the Verizon Level 3 peering connection is congested, maxed out. So Netflix is degraded. Then a user starts up a VPN, which connects to the VPN service provider over a different peering link that is not congested, and Netflix works from their VPN provider's uncongested connection. So the upshot is the user thinks the ISP is throttling Netflix, when in reality, you've just basically rerouted Netflix traffic to another provider without a congested path. Regards, Ashley Beck, IT security consultant and longtime listener, spinwright evangelist, etc., etc. That actually makes you know, sense. And That's great. It, I'm... Thing, I'm sure he's true. Yeah. Many people have asked, and I've just never had an opportunity to mention, that that if you can change the routing of your packets so that you're not going through that pinch point, you'll be fine. And many people have noted that when they use their VPN, Netflix works fine. And I'm sure this is why. You, you've connected to, you've gotten out of the network through a a different peering connection, and then your traffic turns around and wants to go back in to Netflix, and it doesn't do it through that Verizon Netflix pinch point. Yeah. So problem solved. Yeah. Yeah. That that makes sense. Yep. Uh, it could also be, and this is the this is the original presumption that uh, your ISP is throttling intentionally Netflix traffic as opposed to congestion. That they're actually saying, oh, we're going to ban- we're going to turn the knob down on this. True, and and the VPN tunnel would prevent them from knowing that's right. what you were doing. That's that's right. what that's the that's what people are presuming is that oh, the deep packet inspection is not happening because I'm in a tunnel, and so uh, you know whatever they're using Sandvine or whatever isn't isn't working anymore. Right. Um, it could be either one. Greg in the United Kingdom wonders about TNO cloud storage. I've been a listener for a few months, and the show has been a breath of fresh air. from Away from the media hype of the sky is falling. Burn your computers and live in a cave to be safe. I'm interested. Well, that's still my, that might still be a good idea. Actually, yeah. I think if you listen to this show and you really understand what <laughs> Steve's saying, you might feel that way. 
I'm interested in encrypted cloud storage solutions. I'm currently using Google Drive with Box Cryptor 2.0 free as it suits most of my needs and seems to be TNO. However, the free solution doesn't encrypt file names. I'd be more than happy to pay for the product if it saves me from stress. 28 pounds a year? No thanks. I'm really looking for either a one-time purchase or a cheaper subscription cost. I was thinking about using TrueCrypt for a while, but now that I've started to use BoxCryptor, I'm looking for something similar. I have been thinking about this, and I wonder, does it even matter? File name encryption would be nice, but isn't that similar to LastPass not encrypting the names of the sites you stored in your vault? Yeah, an attacker can get the names of the files, but providing you have strong credentials, they have no way of accessing the info. I'm going away to university next month to study, com study computering. computering. <laughs> so it'd be great to have a solution by then. So I have something in place to store my coursework. Any ideas? So I actually do have an idea. Um, uh, and it relates to Boxcryptor. Um, I, I continue to look at Boxcryptor and come away very impressed by the breadth of compatibility... Uh, and the features, but I feel exactly um, uh, the way Greg does about having to pay an annual fee for something that I purchased one time or or want to use. You know, the whole software as a service model just chafes when when I'm just using a piece of software. Turns out, Boxcryptor 1.0, or which they now call Boxcryptor Classic, is available. And with a one-time purchase, you can get file name encryption. The free version works and does, does not do file name encryption. So that, that's their way of like pushing you to pay them once. Um, I'm, I'm coming around to thinking that's sort of the sweet spot. Um, there are all sorts of very cool features that BoxCryptor 2.0 will do for an annual fee but unless you really need them, then I think this makes a lot of sense. So I would say take a look at Boxcryptor Classic, one-time purchase if you want file name encryption. I mean, and again, I agree, I agree with Greg that if your data, you have to decide. If, if the file names of, the, of what you're storing you feel are sensitive, then buy Boxcryptor Classic um, for one-time fee. If you don't care about your file names being leaked, but the but the contents is safe. You can use the Boxcryptor Classic uh, for absolutely free. But uh, take a look at Boxcryptor. I, I, I need to make time to do a survey. Um, I'll probably do that as soon as I've got Squirrel uh, running, so I can we can talk about you know these sorts of solutions. But uh, I, I've been I'm impressed with everything I see from Boxcryptor. This is what you call pre-internet encryption or Pi. Yes. And, and it would uh, work with any uh, uh, cloud uh, syncing solution because you encrypt it and then it syncs the encrypted file, not, not the Oh, exactly. And in fact, they explicitly support, like everybody, I mean, Google Drive, AW, you know, Amazon, uh, OneDrive, TwoDrive, ThreeDrive, all the drives. So, <laughs> uh, uh, And what about SpiderOak? I mean, isn't that trust no one encryption? It is, but it's a, it's a service. So they're oh, providing you pay for it. the... Yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. I just like I like the separation. I like the idea of of separating. Oh, and also Boxcryptor is all cross-platform: Mac, iOS, Android, PC, and so you get you have access to your your cloud 
hosting from all of your platforms. So that's becoming another important thing. That's nice. Very nice. Yes. Box Cryptor. All righty, moving along. I hear the trucks, but the, they haven't been around in a while. So it's no, it's 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 interesting. They, they they've been coming later after the podcast, yeah. and, and when that happens, I always think Whew, we made it. <laughs> uh, Phil Forrest, Auburn University, Alabama, wondering about bad USB asks. Why no signed firmware, Steve? When I uh, I've been reading about the bad USB firmware tech, seems like well, this would all be prevented by a signed firmware infrastructure. Furthermore, wouldn't signed firmware also thwart hardware-based USB keystroke loggers? Thanks, love the show, Phil Forrest, IT manager, College of Science and Mathematics, Auburn <laughs> University, Alabama, War Eagle. So. Um we kind of talked about this before at the top of the show. And, um, you know, I guess, yes, it's important to understand that the history of USB predates this concern about security. Uh, it was all designed 20 years ago. And it was, what was it replacing? I guess serial and parallel ports was the only thing that we had then. Uh, and USB came along and it was like, I, I remember you probably do too, Leo. That that I think it was a Comdex where they had on a huge table two hundred and fifty six like yeah. all all <laughs> yeah. in hubs and hubs and and you know keyboards and I do and remember all that. kinds of you know yeah. cameras and everything and it was just stunned us all. It was like my we were God, thrilled. this is fabulous. Yeah, and so you know worrying about firmware signing was like the furthest thing from our mind. The fact that it worked at all. Was you know where can I get it? So now we have a standard, vastly supported, and it's you know unfortunately it's not secure. I, I think the solution is non-writable firmware, and companies co companies explicitly making it clear the way Ubico has that our stuff cannot be written to, so you're safe from that. And, I, I, you know, if this takes hold, it's going to end up being a competitive advantage. Unfortunately, we'll have to take their word for it because they could have proprietary means for writing to their firmware uh, rather than, you know, using the the device firmware upgrade spec. So uh, it's a mess. Yeah, it's kind of sad. Yeah, but it's, it's the nature of, uh, you know, that's why the cave does sound like a good alternative. <laughs> I think it was Windows 98 didn't support USB natively, but SE did. Right? Something like that. I mean, it was a it was, you're right. There, there was, I think there was like an update. A service pack? Oh, okay. That, yeah. that, yes, there was a there was an update that added that, and it was like, oh, this is you know, great. I In fact, that's one of the reasons I moved to from, from NT to 2000. Was it N I was still on NT4, and and 2000 had like better right. support for USB. USB. And like, okay, fine. So Iron Key, by the way, is saying we do require the firmware be signed. Good, but it's I'm trying to remember from this bad USB presentation at Black Hat. It seemed to me there that wasn't enough to make it secure. I, I think it's not enough. Yeah, I mean I'm glad that they've given it some attention. The problem but is that the firmware itself reports whether it's signed. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so if you modify the firmware, among other things, what you're going to say is, oh, no, and if anybody asks, we're signed. Yeah. Don't, yeah. 
So that's the real problem is that the communication is managed by the firmware. So if you've compromised the firmware, every all bets are off. You could that's why an antivirus can't detect it. Because the firmware says no virus is here. Well, well, and an antivirus doesn't have access Can't even through the USB yeah. interface. Yeah. It sees a it sees a hard drive right. or a keyboard or something. It doesn't know how to look behind the behind the behind the curtain. If the device itself has a certificate and the firmware you're trying to install on it is not signed, will that block it? There would have to be there. You'd have to have a non-writable core. That's you'd the have. Yes, you, you'd have something that cannot be changed. I mean, the model is exactly like iOS, the notion of bootstrapping. You have a bootloader, which is in ROM, or absolutely non-accessible, non-rewritable volatile storage or non-volatile storage, but cannot be changed. Otherwise, you just that, zap the key. Yes, exactly. You zap the so check. It cannot, so it cannot yeah. be changed, and then that bootloader... Looks at the firmware, does and and checks the signature, and and verifies that it's been signed. Then the bootloader jumps into that volatile, the relatively volatile code, right. and executes it. Now IronKey is okay. saying, "Oh no, our keys are in hardware," but that's not sufficient. The software that that does the checking has to also be in hardware. Yeah, otherwise you're right. It's modifiable, get, and then it doesn't matter. Yeah. So, you know, this is the problem is these companies may not be responding fully candidly. I know. And and it's it's, it's <laughs> for obvious reasons. <laughs> exactly. Harrison Ward in Flower Mound, Texas offers his home guest network router solution. We we're talking about the fact that EFF and others, in fact, Steve Jobs had this idea, uh all routers should have a guest mode. Why not just use a system like PFSense, pfsense.org, with dedicated NICs and networks? I've been using this forever and love it. Have myself multiple networks so I can monitor, set up separate rules. Uh, one for my home network systems, network of things, thermostats, light bulbs, etc. Oh, I get it. The idea of having separate networks, VLANs, I guess, for you know different kinds of traffic, media networks, yep. and then a guest network. With capture portal and port blocking and a DMZ network for anything shared with the world. I know this is a much more complicated setup, but it does allow for segmentation and high security. We use that here at the Brickhouse, but more for to avoid collisions because Ethernet's collision-based. Uh, you have right. VLANs for all the, all the different kinds of traffic. Right. So I, I just wanted to acknowledge PFSense. Uh, many of our listeners, uh, the higher-end Linux hacky sort of listeners have said, hey, Steve, what about PFSense? And it is a beautiful firewall. If, you know, you, you take a PC, which you're no, you're no longer using because you've outgrown it. You know, it's only got one core instead of 25. So uh, you give it a couple NICs and basically build yourself a little, a little hardware firewall router appliance. The reason I don't normally talk about it, the reason we were talking about knitting together the blue plastic boxes to sort of, you know, cobble together a solution like this is that this is much more high-end network, you know, expertise, firewall rules and port ranges and, as you said, Leo, VLANs and so forth. So by all means, if if a, a higher-end listener wants a really a power solution, pfsense.org, 
uh, you know, you load that onto, a, like I said, a PC that's no longer your primary, just sits in the in the corner and routes your traffic. You could have, I mean, if you're a if you're into network technology, you can have never ending amounts of fun oh, or something yeah. like this. Oh yeah. Yeah, I remember but, our first sponsor, Astaro. I mean, they you could have set up all of this uh, by downloading precisely. the free Astaro software, putting it on a yes. old PC, creating all of this stuff. And I'm sure yes, people do, exactly. but you know that's a lot of work. Yeah, and, it's, and it's a expertise. whole different deal. Yeah, and, and you know, so I just wanted to say yes, pfsense.org, absolutely for you know the high end networking guy. Right. Uh, here you go, Joe Rodericks. Our last question in Massachusetts wonders about. Home infrastructure for the future. Steve, this, this is a bit out of band, but I was hoping to get your thoughts. I'm working on building a house. It's uh, 400 feet from my parents' home, and I'm looking into linking the two with fiber. It's surprisingly affordable and doable for a single gigabit link, but what would you do for the actual LAN inside the home? Do you think it's worth running Cat6? Will radio and future radio specs keep up with future needs? I assume... 4K TV over the internet will happen eventually. In fact, Netflix is already doing it. And who knows what else is coming? Security aside, is wired still better than wireless? You know, I'm feeling my age because I am amazed by the bandwidth that we're getting now with wireless. I, I mean, I just, I remember when we were, you know, at one megabit. Thinking, okay, that you know, they can't get a megabit through the air. No, that's just not that's not going to happen. <laughs> and and you know, it, it's just crazy. Where are we now? Three hundred megabits, Leo? On AC? On yeah, I think it's three hundred megabits. Wow, that's just I just and, I'm and it's got stunned. beam forming, so that's that's really cool too. It aims yeah. at whatever's talking to it. Yeah, it's got the whole MIMO, the MIMO, the multiple yeah. antenna beamforming deal using, you know, phasing, phasing the individual members of the uh, of the antenna so that they so the nodes cancel out and it's strengthened only in a certain direction. It's just like uh, it's amazing to me. So I, I think, Joe, my my feeling is I, I'm past the point of being stunned by radio. <laughs> And I, I just think the convenience of it, we now have security protocols that make it as secure, as you know, secure enough, given a strong password. Um, I'm old school. I'm old school. I've got wire running through. If I were building a home, for example, Mark Thompson did, and he plumbed the entire place for, for, for uh, Ethernet cable. So, I mean, the, the, the idea that you're building a home and you have the opportunity to run wire – Boy, you know, I'd at least run it wire to the important areas. Put down Cat 6, like, you know, from like a closet to where you think your entertainment system will be, where you think your, your computer will be. I mean, so you take advantage of wireless for where you need mobility, but take advantage of wired where you have where, – where you're able to know in advance where your major bandwidth, you know, your, your, your non-mobile bandwidth consumption – will be like your entertainment center, your home theater, your office and, and things. I, I, I would you, you really can't pass up the chance of wiring those. But boy, you know, wireless is a great fallback. Well, the good, you know, the good news is you can always add wireless later. There's, you yes. know, if you're building a house, you don't have to do anything to prepare for wireless except maybe not put too much metal in the wall. 
Um, but but you're not going to add Cat six later. We use Cat six for ten gigabit here, by the way. Wow. So uh, Cat six is still a very a relatively economical, even compared to fiber. And fiber, remember, you got to get switches. You get you have to have more than just the fiber. You got to get the yeah, expensive I mean, glass talk- switches. He's talking about just a fiber backbone between the houses. Well, but you still have to have and a fiber switch at each end. At each end, yes. And that's true. Lots of money. So <laughs> I would do Cat 6. In fact, what I really would do, here's what I would do, conduit. Conduit with Cat 6 in it. But if uh, de- the day comes when there's Cat 16, you could just attach it to the end yep. of Cat 6, pull it out, and it, you know, rewire. So conduit I would put and, conduit and, everywhere, and I would and, put Cat 6 also, for and now. Also and then, and also leave some um, nylon uh, Fishing cord, line. right? Yeah, just pull through, through the conduit exactly. coming out of each end, yeah. so you're able to to pull things. Yeah, yep. conduit is really the only way to future proof it. The other thing is, no matter how fast wireless gets wired, will still be faster no matter what, right? I mean, the same, you know. I think. Well, wired- I have to think. <laughs> I have to believe that. It's I just can't believe <laughs> what is going through the air. But right. also, also just. Integrity. I mean, wireless is fundamentally, you know, jammable, right. for example, and just I, I have a hard time believing what yeah. they're able to do. Yeah. But, you know, wires, wires I can believe in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was so, really thrilled to learn that the Cat 6 we put in here three years ago can carry 10 gigabits. We're abandoning uh, our uh, uh, SAN and nice. the fiber that was leading to the SAN and replacing it all with copper uh, using... Uh, um, fast NICs and uh, and and fast storage and and it's great. Ten gigabits is great. Wow, that's it's plenty. It's plenty for our <laughs> listen editors. To us, listen to us. Ten gigabits. Ten gigabits. We did a. You know, Russell of course wanted to validate it before we did it. He transferred a gigabyte file in a second. One second. Unbelievable. That's good. <laughs> that's, that's... And that's hundreds of feet too. I mean, that's a pretty big throw. Wow. So we want to make sure that the longest, I don't remember what the longest throw was, but we want to make sure the longest throw could handle 10 gigabits. And yes, in fact, we could. So, so. I wanted to wrap this with just a, a, a quick comment um, that's, that's been, it's been on my mind after looking through the list of presentations at Black Hat and DEF CON and in the wake of the Snowden revelations and... Knowing what it means for today's actually delivered security to be as soft as it is. I've talked about, I've used the term porous before, um, where, you know, you look really carefully at OpenSSL, which so many sites are using, and you find mistakes. You look really close at pretty much anything which is sufficiently complex and you find mistakes. I mean, that's the history of this. You, you know, they look at at automotive security systems and the networks now that are operating our cars and they find mistakes that allow them to open the doors and roll down the windows and apply the brakes and deploy the airbags, unfortunately. Mistakes. And then... You look at the NSA and their budget and and their interest in in finding these mistakes. And I think we're fooling ourselves if we believe 
despite the fact that the math is absolutely perfect. It's the implementation that is the problem. Mistakes, little things like, ooh, look, uh, that random number generator, we're not so sure about. And they may have helped that get chosen to be the standard. You know, over the last few years, we've seen example after example. And so I just wanted to wrap this ninth year of the Security Now podcast, where over the course of these years, we've really sort of developed a much, I think, a deeper sense of reality. Uh, Some people want to go hide in the cave. Others of us are going to go crusading around with squirrels and, and, you know, keep trying to solve these problems in a, in a simple and secure way. But at the same time, I'm just betting that, you know, inside the depths of the NSA, they're not worried because they understand that, that their ability to focus on the porosity of the security we're actually implementing in the field gives them gives them an edge you know they may very well have already found the mistakes for example in bad usb we, there's some supposition that stuxnet may have been propagated that way i mean they could certainly have arranged to have compromised firmware in drives that everyone just assumes is, you know, they're fine if they're able to, you know, to physically get them into the channel somehow so that they they drift into those those factories. So, I mean, I don't think this is gloom and doom. I think this is a little maybe a dose of of constructive reality. It's that we should not imagine that that we can really raise barriers that that a a super well-funded determined attacker with good intentions arguably like the NSA uh are unable to penetrate i think they probably can um i, I think it's worth us continuing to to try to close the pores in security um clearly we're finding mistakes and we're fixing them. We are learning. We are way better today than we were nine years ago at the beginning of the podcast. We as a society, we as a, as a network of people. Um, unfortunately, we're seeing new things like the Internet of Things where people are launching products with half-baked security. But notice how quickly we're now catching up and saying, whoa, 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 we need some standards for light bulbs and pasta makers because you can get up to mischief if you have an unsecured pasta maker in your in your kitchen. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm overall, I'm encouraged. But at the same time, I, I'm, I'm having to acknowledge, given the presentations we see at conferences like Black Hat and, and DEF CON, you know, security is hard. And uh, and there really is, you know, there, there's there's a, an inherent porosity to to um, big complex systems. There generally is a way in. We, it's funny you should say that because I've been talking a little bit about that on other shows. Um, 
that there is no such thing as 100% security or 100% privacy. And particularly on the Internet, if you insist on either, you're probably going to break the Internet. That, that right. In order to do that, you'd have to kind of fundamentally undermine what makes the Internet work. Well, and and look at the cost that right. we are putting the typical user through by requiring a 20-character random debris a password uniquely for every site they go to. I mean, that is the only way we have today to be really safe. And wow, that's, I mean, now, I mean, I'm completely crippled now without LastPass. I don't know any of my passwords. Right. right. Yikes. And, and, <laughs> I know. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as we found out with Matt Honan, the Wired editor who got hacked, the truth is, for most of us, if we do get hacked, it won't be because we had insecure passwords. Right. So, go, you know, have at it. Have great insecure passwords. He did. <laughs> it didn't, had he had second factor authentication on his Google, that might have worked. That might have been enough. So yep. there are things you can do. I don't worry. You know, I don't really worry. And I'm, as you are, I mean, I think we're targets. Anybody who does a show called Security Now is kind of asking for it. We got a big red bullseye <laughs> on our back. Um, and uh, knock on wood, I haven't been hacked. You haven't been hacked. We, I think it's possible if if you operate fairly sanely and, and, you, and you don't really have a determined hacker at going after you. I think that see and and that's exactly my point is the determined hacker is like the determined NSA. Right. It is you we have to accept the fact that we're in an in we're in an imperfect security world and we need to decide where's the right trade-off between the cost and the vulnerability. And, you know, so so I do things like I've talked about, like having having a, a like an absolute firebreak in my electronic funds transfer where I force the physical writing of checks across mm -hmm. those mm -hmm. those barriers. It's a pain for Sue, but it's like I just don't want that. I, I'm, I want a firebreak there. Um, and so so. But but as people have noted, it's inconvenient. Then they can't do their electronic banking the way they want to. It's like, yes, I know. But if something gets in your computer and transfers the funds away, then then if nothing else, that's a bigger that's also an inconvenience. So yeah, I, I think you know here we are wrapping up year nine, um, and uh, we'll have plenty of content for year ten. Amazing. Well, we're wrapping it up. Uh, next week, our 10th year begins. Jeez Louise. Yep. <laughs> and we've both gone gray doing it. Uh, we Steve, have. <laughs> Steve Gibson is at GRC.com, the Gibson Resource Corporation. That's where he sells Spinrite. You must buy it, the world's best hard drive. Maintenance and recovery utility. It's like 20 years old. Yes. I mean, this yes. version isn't, but yeah, you've been doing this for a long time. Uh, you can also find all sorts of great stuff. Steve has accreted... On his website over the past 10 years. <laughs> it does agree. Like the pearl in an oyster. Every little thing that irritates him becomes a pearl. That's right. And uh, and you'll find them all at GRC.com, all free, including 16 kilobit versions of this show in audio. And uh, Elaine Ferris's wonderful handwritten, handcrafted transcriptions. On our site, twit.tv slash SN, we have uh, full quality audio, uh, video in a variety of formats. 
you can go there or anywhere podcasts are aggregated. iTunes, all the all the best places have security now. Or, or accreted. Accreted. Aggregated <laughs> or accreted. What is the difference between aggregating and accreting? I'll have to think about that. Uh, since we've been around nine years, that makes us one of the oldest podcasts in the world. Still surviving. Still surviving podcasts. That's right. And that means we are everywhere. Everybody knows about us. Stitcher. We've got great apps on iOS and Android and Windows and Roku. And thanks to our app developers for making that possible. All independent, hardworking boys and girls deserving of your support. Steve, we'll be back here when we do this again. Next time is Tuesday, 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 2000 UTC on twit.tv. We uh, will see you New Year's Eve, I hear. That's wonderful yep. news. I'll be back. We're you doing our uh, 24 hours of 2015 once again. We had so much fun doing a 24-hour marathon last year on New Year's Eve. And that, we, we, uh, we've now recovered. Yeah, it took me a week or two or <laughs> five or 100. <laughs> But uh, yeah, no, I, I feel I feel fairly rested after about eight months later. Uh, yeah, but we are and actually. In fact, you, and, and you're going to do another whole 24 hour we cycle. Are. And we we've, yep. we started planning and everything, and we're going to do it for charity this time, which we should have done the first time. So it'll be almost like a Jerry Lewis telethon. Uh, we're going to raise money for Child's Play, Neat. and other and some local charities too. So that'll be fun. Um, and uh, we'll give you more details. But uh, just schedule New Year's Day, New Year's Eve day with us. Because it'll be almost, it is virtually all day New Year's Eve day. It's a lot, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you, Steve. We'll see you all Okay, my time. friend. Talk to you next week for beginning of year 10.